This is an audio recording of the Lendit Fintech Weekly News Show. The show is streamed live on Lendit TV, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Twitter at 5 p.m. Eastern Time every Thursday. In this fast-paced show, the Lendit News team and a special guest discuss the most important fintech news stories of the past week. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back to the weekly Fintech Nexus News Show. My name is Peter Renton, Chairman and Co-Founder of Fintech Nexus. I'm coming at you from Austin, Texas today, where I'm here uh, at the Consensus Show, the crypto show here. Uh, Todd is uh, just has just been to Money 2020, so the Lender team is on the road. How are you doing, Todd? I'm good, Peter. How are you? Doing great. And our special now in, guest... Now in London, by the way. You're now in London. That's right. Moved on from Amsterdam. And for the first time, uh, we have Nick Bolanovich. How are you doing, Nick? Good, good. I'm just in the middle ground for you two over here in New York. Uh, first, but hopefully not the time. Why don't you give a quick 30-second intro about yourself so the listeners know who you are? Let me see if I can get it to 30 seconds. Um, but Peter, thank you for having me on the show. Todd, it's great to see you again, too. Um, been working in the fintech space for a little over a decade now. Um, was the first hire over at Funding Circle um, with Sam and Alex in San Francisco. Um, and then um, joined the early team at Pedal, building a uh, credit card using cash flow data um, to get their first product to market. And spent the last two years at Google Pay in the U.S. heading up business development before um, leaving at the beginning of this year to switch to the investing side, where I started a small early stage fintech investment fund, um, very, very creatively called the fintech fund. And that's <laughs> most of my time these days. Um, but uh, outside of that, run a fintech uh, community and newsletter called This Week in Fintech. And um, Peter, knowing you, and you've definitely been an inspiration with everything that you've built at Fintech Nexus. So excited to be on the show. Great to have you. And yes, we've no, we go back a long way. I remember when we used to meet in your in the office in San Francisco in Funding Circle back in the day. That was like eight or nine years ago. But anyway, we have a busy, busy news show, just like usual. But this first first thing we need to talk about, which I think is has been um, the biggest story in some time, and it's all about Apple. They had their Worldwide Developers Conference. They announced the um, upcoming features of iOS sixteen. And the one feature that has grabbed everyone's attention in fintech is that Apple Pay is going to have a um, buy now, pay later offering, basically Apple Pay later. It's just, uh, it looks like a clone of Afterpay, just uh, paying for for installments. Um, It's going to be available for any user of uh, Apple Pay and um, it's uh, it's big, big news. I mean, this is something I've, I've said for a long time that, I think the most underdeveloped app in all of fintech is the Apple Wallet. It just doesn't do much, and it should do more. Um, and here is a uh, an example <laughs> of doing doing a little bit more. Thoughts? I mean, you know, we all wondered the acquisition of Credit Kudos, what that meant for Apple, and what were they doing there. Uh, I think the most surprising thing <clears throat> about the announcement was that they're taking underwriting in house. Yes. Uh, just, so I think that was, <clears throat> yeah, that was kind of the, the shocker of the announcement. We just assumed that they'd probably just, you know, be working with Goldman in, in a similar way that they did the Apple cart. But that was a uh, an interesting thing. The other thing I think is 
probably the the larger story is and i've said this for a while is the you know the creation of this apple ecosystem you know apple tv apple wallet now apple pay and four or whatever they're going to call it i mean they're creating something where you essentially go in your phone and don't have to leave or go on your computer or, or your ipad and don't have to leave and it's an interesting play I think Square or Block is is doing similar things and Stripe. It's kind of like these little ecosystems that are creating, um, you know, within the larger ecosystem. Uh, and so, you know, I think the larger play is, is going to be something to watch. But, you know, this is something that if I was by now pay later company, I'd be pretty scared, especially if I wasn't like a firm or Afterpay and, and some of the big ones. Because this is big news that's going to eat right into what they're trying to do. Yeah. I mean, I'm always, I'm always a little bit reticent to give too much credibility to people who say, you know, Apple or Google is going to decimate this industry um, because there are a lot of product forays into um, industries like FinTech that don't necessarily end up, you know, uh, taking away too much market share for the incumbent. Google pay was supposed to kill, you know, PayPal and Venmo, I think for the last 10 years, but um, you know, cash app ended up kind of, taking away that market share and with Google pay, it hasn't happened yet in the U S but um, I, I do think it is kind of a, um, a warning signal in mass consumer buy now, pay later that just like credit cards, buy now, pay later is not necessarily a product with any real moats developed in it. Um, you are effectively selling a commoditized product and you have to find good ways to differentiate it um, and to find your niche or your specialty. Um, that allow you to win over consumers that are not going to work with, you know, multiple different providers. Um, and I, I think it also shows that, you know, differentiated underwriting is not a long-term viable moat either for, for a buy now, pay later product. Balance sheet is, is the real moat. Can you amass capital um, at such a low rate um, that you're able to effectively split these installments into customers at 0% interest? Like that seems to be like the compelling differentiator here. Um, but as far as I can tell, that's the only, uh, you know, obstacle to, to, to launching a new product in this space. So I think it is a, a cautionary tale, especially for the smaller buy now, pay later providers that are generalists and haven't yet scaled up yet. You need to find a differentiated niche with Apple. Todd, I could not agree more with you. I, I think, I think it's unlikely that Apple wants to become a financial services company here. Um, I think what they're trying to do is create more lock-in to their own product ecosystem and more benefits of staying within that ecosystem. Mm -hmm. um, so if you have the Apple Card, if you have access to Apple's Buy Now Pay Later feature, um, or if you're on the path to Apple Card, which is like their credit graduation program at Apple Card, or if you use their prepaid card product, which is now Apple Pay because they've included a digital wallet with it with peer-to-peer -peer payment functionality, um, all of these products can be built into um, paying for things on your iPhone whether it's in the app store, whether it's serving Safari, um, it just makes your experience that much better in the ecosystem. If like you said, you don't have to leave it to grab your credit card or connect an external form of financing. So I think, you know, Apple will sell more products themselves and they're looking to continue growing their GMV over time, you know, as they saturate their market. Um, and if they can take, you know, a percent of those transactions as they're growing or as others are selling their products through iPhones, it's kind of a no brainer for them. Um, yeah. But outside of creating that kind of like ecosystem value, uh, I, I kind of doubt that they're trying to, you know, become a, a banking product. Yeah, and I've heard, I've read some things of people saying they're going to get fifty percent market share. Someone even said eighty percent market share. I mean, 
I feel like that's uh, that may be a little optimistic. Um, certainly, in I the, think it's in, just more the the like you said, Nick, it's the earlier BMPO who haven't really reached scale yet who will probably be hurt by this. Um, but, but, but it's I, like yeah, credit cards, though. I, I yeah. think credit cards are a good industry comp here. Um, yeah. And you have this extremely fragmented credit card market where, like, launching the Apple card, it's a vertical-specific card for a certain type of person, but it's not really going to threaten, you know, other card issuers. Yeah. Uh, distribution and it's not going to kill credit cards either, BMPL. No. It's just another no. credit product. Yeah, that's a, that's a story for another day. But there's, yeah, as you say, it's like there's room for many players. That's what Max Levchin said this week. The market is large. It's getting larger every day, and there's room for, for multiple players. We could spend the whole 30 minutes talking about Apple, but we're not going to. Um, moving on, PayPal. This is a long-awaited uh, feature that they have finally launched. They're basically allowing users now. You can send and receive crypto um, from um, to and from outside wallets from your PayPal crypto wallet now. And they're encouraging users to sort of consolidate their crypto at PayPal. Um, it's only available in the US um, right now, but uh, I imagine they'll be rolling it out globally. And um, interesting thing that I read about this piece was that this is made possible from their bit license they have through the New York Department of Financial Services. And uh, that, um, you know, I feel like PayPal has, you know, they, they've they've been playing around with crypto for a little bit. They've they continue to make make more and more moves in this space. Yeah, and I think the larger story about bringing in the other crypto is is more interesting. And to me, the space in general, the interoperability cross chain is to me, the more interesting story is how do all these things begin to, to play with one another and do they play with one another in a way that's, you know, efficient and, and not, you know, uh, doesn't get killed on fees and, and uh, whatnot when it comes to, um, you know, the interoperability and cross-chain. Um, I think it's a natural move and obviously a move they, they already talked about. I think it was a year ago or whatnot, but mm-hmm. um, the larger piece of how will the different players start to work together uh, and what that means uh, still remains to be seen, you know, for the wider market, but, you know, a move that we, we kind of expected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's a really interesting play out on, on PayPal's part. And you've seen longtime Robinhood users also um, who yeah. are crypto purists give them a very hard time for having a, a custodial wallet and not allowing, um, you know, access and ownership to the crypto that they're uh, purchasing through the Robinhood marketplace. And so Robinhood is doing this as well. And, and the, the, the bet that you're kind of making there is that if you're building any kind of stored value platform, like a digital wallet or like a, an investment pr- uh, platform that, you know, is ranked by AOM, um, do you benefit yourself more by building a wall garden or by creating interoperability? Well, you can see the you know obvious allure of a walled garden. If you have an easy way for customers to amass assets on your platform without being able to move them off, then obviously that's that's long term better for your business as a whole because you're trying to grow your AOM or you're trying to grow your stored value balances. Um, but I think PayPal is making an interesting bet here by saying interoperability is actually going to be net beneficial to us in the long term, not just because you have like the hardcore crypto purists who want to be able to move money back and forth between wallets. But then if you have, you know, kind of seamless connectivity 
across different wallets, whether they're self-custodial, whether they're you know managed by you know third parties, um, it becomes less about um, where the money you know can move in flow and what the benefits are of holding the money in different places at rest. And so PayPal starts competing on what you can do with your money when it's held as crypto in your PayPal wallet. So all of a sudden, if they're offering features on top of it, like easily pay with crypto at any merchant online or um, get honey discounts um, at a merchant and pay through crypto or stablecoin or earn interest on your holdings that are sitting in your PayPal balance and they're doing the back end lending. Then it becomes a really creative move for them because they start inbounding a lot of crypto stored in other wallets because they have a better offering for what happens to the money at rest. Good points. Good points, Nick. Um, okay, let's move on. This is this this has been um, the talk of the consensus uh, conference today. Uh, the new um, Responsible Financial Innovation Act. It's a bipartisan um, bill that has been put put forward by. Uh, Senator Lummis and Senator Gillibrand from that's New Wyoming and New York, respectively. Um, this is all about, this is what we've been waiting for in many ways, the federal, um, federal regulation of digital assets. Um, basically, they're saying that the CFTC should be the agency that actually regulates them. Um, they're calling most digital assets commodities. And uh, we had have, have the head of the CFTC speaking here earlier today who is uh, welcoming this move. Um, they're going to be introduced to a new term called ancillary assets, which is what they're going to call um, digital assets or crypto assets. So it's, uh, it's, it's a big move. I mean, the, the, the basically the, the, the view here is that this is a opening salvo and the final, final bill will look nothing like this, not, nothing like what's on here, but it's good. It, it's mostly supportive of what the crypto community is saying here. I think the scarier part in the, I think the piece that I read was, you know, the thought that they could break the bill up into smaller bills, which yeah. would probably turn it into a, a complete mess, like Congress and, and um, those in the Senate and the, the House usually do. Um, overall, I mean, reading on the face of it, it's something that I think the crypto industry would wholeheartedly embrace. Um, I don't know how Democrats um, on the Hill will uh, actually embrace it because they've been harsher on the um, the industry as a whole. Um, I think reading through what I've seen, it seems sensible uh, and uh, reasonable. It's not over the top. It seems like they've done their homework and, um, you know, it's kind of like a middle path uh, that makes sense for a lot of uh, a lot of the pieces in the ecosystem. Yeah, I, I feel like DC is being pretty reasonable um, with their approach here. And I agree with both of you that the long term is probably not going to look like anything like this bill. Um, you know, right now, I feel like we're treating crypto a little bit as a monolith. And uh, there are currencies that act like securities and there are currencies that act like uh, commodities or, uh, you know, act like currencies. And it's in all likelihood, there's a different regulatory regime that's going to be applicable for each of them. So I think there's a lot of... Uh, territorialism over which financial regulator in the U.S. is going to ultimately regulate crypto. And my bet is that it's, you know, all of them. I think every state and every financial federal regulator is eventually going to regulate crypto. It's just a matter of understanding better the different use cases and the different, um, you know, ways that people use it. Uh, well, I guess that's two ways of saying the same thing. But um, this just feels like an opening salvo and not at all kind of a, a long-term, um, you know, steady state for crypto regulation. And it's funny, you know, um, 
the hardcore libertarians in the crypto world will probably be mad about this. But for the most part, this is a really positive indicator for the space. If it's big enough yep. to get regulated, that means it'll be around. Yeah, it's uh, it, it, like the, the general theme theme here today in, in Austin is that it's this is this is only positive. There's really a good, uh, you know, we we could have this is a much better than having nothing, and it's a good starting point. That's what most people. Well, they are. needed to put something down, and it's a good start. But they they needed to start. You know, they've been talking and talking and talking. The Biden, you know, order was was pretty bland and kind of spreading it out to the agencies and whatnot. Putting something down on paper is a, a real big first step. Right, right. And uh, let's staying with crypto and the federal government. We we uh, I just uh, Caitlin Long, who spoke at uh, FinTech Nexus just a couple of weeks ago, um, was also speaking here today, and uh, she made news by um, she her, her bank custodian. Um, is uh, has is suing the Federal Reserve, and um, she may she wouldn't talk about it obviously on stage, but uh, you know it's pretty clear that she's been frustrated. She was told it was going to take a week to get a master account decision. It's been nineteen months, and twelve months apparently is a statutory deadline. So just that the Fed have gone seven months past their own deadline, and they haven't told her why. And that's where I think it's just so criminal what the government does sometimes by you don't have any idea um how or why it's just you just get told and it's you're you're in the dark so i mean she's not going to win, win any friends in the federal government by doing this but i think she's trying to make a point that this is this is unacceptable let's just hope she gets a, a friendly judge that you know kind of at least not necessarily takes her side but gives her you know the the time uh, to review the case and doesn't say like oh the Fed had um, you know reason to to delay. Ultimately, it's about transparency. If they're going to delay, then just tell her this is why we need to delay, and we'll continue to keep you in the loop. But uh, the government she, she, has, she has no idea. Like she says, literally, she exactly. has no idea why it's being delayed. That's just asinine. Yeah, I, I admire the chutzpah of taking the Fed to court. Um, although I'm not bullish on on their chances, it would be nice if this uh, resulted in clearer guidance for other custodians about how to uh, move through the licensing process. But I don't know. I'm a little skeptical that it will. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. I mean, let's. I mean, the best case scenario is this sort of um, you know doesn't actually go to trial or anything. It just uh, it gets gets settled. Probably by, issue but... some bland statement that the Fed with you know has some power that we're all unaware of that's to delay or something. I don't know. (laughs) Okay. um, Moving on. um, More news this week. Um, Our good friends at Fireblocks have uh, partnered with Checkout.com to settle payments now in USDC. And um, what this is going to really mean is that uh, Checkout.com that has obviously it's, 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 um, checkout uh, system that used by by I think millions of uh, merchants certainly certainly many many merchants. This is going to allow them to settle twenty four seven so and settle instantly. So you get or you get um, the business small businesses that are using checkout.com will be able to get their money 
in uh, in real time in uh, you know seven days a week. 20, you know that that to me is the big is the big news. They've they've already done three hundred million dollars in transactions in their beta tests. So I think this is uh, this is a really important quite industry. quite the beta test. Yes, million. <laughs> but I mean, it's you know this type of solution is what. And I actually talked to uh, Jess at um, Money Twenty Twenty. Um, but this type of solution is exactly what you know merchants want is they want real time access to capital uh, and if it's you know a certain time of day or the weekend it feels as if it's you know not possible in, in today's world uh, and then you get a you know a partnership like this uh, and all of a sudden it unlocks a lot more uh, and so this is the like arguably the perfect example that you want to see of kind of fintech web3 merging together um, and you know it's welcome news and curious to see how it turns out for them but checkout.com is obviously um, you know making some moves here I, I agree I, I love this partnership um, and you know coming two or three weeks after the Terra Luna blow up it's it's pretty interesting timing because you can see that you know not all stable coins are created equal um, you know USDC is is backed one to one by dollars um, which I think is something that gets checkout.com comfortable with this as a payment method. It'll be interesting to see long-term what the regulatory treatment of this is. Um, you know, in the US, this is effectively what RTP and the Federal Reserve's FedNow systems are trying to create, is this real-time settlement um, mm -hmm. and transfer system. And so the question in the long-term is, um, you know, are they comfortable with a privately owned, held, backed and managed stablecoin um, facilitating effectively the same interaction or, um, you know, and I know, you know, check out being a, a UK company, the question is like, does the Bank of England decide that they're comfortable with private stable coins or that it needs to be a bank, central bank issued one? Yeah, that is the big question. There was actually a debate on that at a really good session here today on that very topic. Um, and it was really, there was, there was, you know, one side was taking that it has to be the federal government to be issuing these things. The other side was taking, if we wait for the federal government, it's going to take another five years. Um, you know, what meanwhile? It could be both. Yeah, yeah, it, it could end up. But long term, long term, I think uh, it could well be. But, and uh, and it goes back to interoperability. How does the CBDC network work with a private network like this? Right. Okay, moving on to Upstart in the news this week. I remember I, I wrote about this back in 2017 when it came out. They got a no-action letter from the CFPB on their you know, AI-powered underwriting model, and they have seemed to... It's, it's come to a mutual decision to terminate that no-action letter, and um, you know, Upstart wanted to update the models with the new variables. CFPB didn't really like... The new CFPB guy um, doesn't even like the no-action letter program period. Um, he felt like that the no action letter could have, in, you know, was a tacit endorsement of um, from the CFPB, and that's not what he wanted. So anyway, Upstart no longer has the CFPB's um, no action letter as part of their arsenal when, um, you know, when talking with, uh, talking with other regulators and, uh, and really talking with their investors. But um, clearly, I think it's, uh, they decided it wasn't worth it anymore. You know, uh, yeah, I don't know. We, we, this is like <laughs> the no action letter was like three or four CFPBs ago. That was like the rich <laughs> Gray CFPB with Dan Kwan and Project Catalyst in the Office of Innovation. And 
you know, that organization's changed a lot. And um, it, it just doesn't seem like no action letters have a lot of market value for startups. I, I guess that's my takeaway here um, is effectively, you know, the CFPB will publish proposed rulemakings and it will take action against, um, you know, companies that, that are in violation of the standards that it upholds. Um, you know, whether it's UDAP or whether it's any other part of the Truth and Lending Act or other Dodd-Frank laws that it's going after, um, you know, startups for. And, and I think that, you know, if you're if you're building a product like Upstart is with alternative underwriting and for whatever reason, it's found to be in breach of a regulation the CFPB wants to enforce, you'll probably have a notice period for them. They'll probably reach out. I, I think that is a pretty reasonable um, organization that's going to give you a lot of heads up. Um, and give you uh, a window of time to change your practices instead of just coming after you with an enforcement action. And so the question is like, does a no action letter really do anything on top of that? And it feels like the verdict is kind of no in this case. Yeah, I mean, I've always I've always wondered about it myself. I mean, you know, we've had Dan Kwan on many times and he's uh, he was the father of this no action letter um, in many ways. And uh, he was a huge supporter of it, but- uh, I, mean, I think know, they I've got often... some juice out of it because it was the first. Yeah. But after that kind of little bump, nothing it much felt happened. Like it, yeah, it felt like it just kind of faded. It was like, oh, this is the first, and then it was like, all right, that 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 ended. Yeah, like your old employer Pedal never uh, never tried to get one, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but we we thought it was really interesting when it came out. We were, we were kind of curious to see whether that would open the floodgates for more, more no action letters to get signed. Yeah, didn't. Okay. Anyway, let's uh, let's move on. Um, this was an article really about um, the May 2020 event on CNBC. They were just talking about the mood is grim, um, is very grim, was actually the headline. The once hot fintech sector faces IPO delays and consolidation. Yeah, the Stripe C, the Stripe not CEO, the, one of the, co the other Collison, the president and co-founder, he says Stripe may not be worth $95 billion today. Um, and so it's, that's a pretty, you know, I mean, that's not, not, a, not exactly uh, surprising that just surprising we'd say in public, but everyone knows that, um, you know, Zopa uh, was going to do an IPO this year. They're not going to uh, various CEOs saying it's, it's difficult raising money. I know I had Matt Harris talking about this on the FinTech Nexus stage a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he thinks that you've got uh, a window till the end of June and then you will not be able to raise money. Um, from outside investors, it has to be an inside round, inside around if you want to raise money. So it's it's looking grim. What what what, what did you find at the at the show, Todd? There was a lot of valuation talk. Um, you know, people are certainly there is a worry in the market, but at the same time, there's also a the cream will rise to the top. Like this is where the the best companies, the best executives, the best teams figure out ways to navigate. Maybe they, you know, tighten a bit uh, and don't raise that outsized round. Um, but there's also going to be a lot of opportunities to acquire either teams or acquire, you know, um, you know, potential technologies. So there's going to be consolidation. Uh, and I think you'll find that there's a lot of opportunity out there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely headwinds and, and people are concerned. The question is, how long does it last? Mm. That is I, the, I don't think any of us know. Yeah, that's the trillion dollar question right there. If anybody knows, <laughs> please let me know. <laughs> but um, 
Yeah, I mean, Peter, to that comment, you know, is Stripe worth $95 billion today? I feel like the most important word in that sentence is today. Um, right. You know, what we're seeing is a normal correction in the course of the business cycle. People have been talking about overinflated asset valuations, you know, at least since like Lloyd Blankfein and Goldman brought it out in 2017 and said they're not, you know, they're ramping down equity exposure because they thought that the market um, price to earnings ratios were, were um, unsustainable at that level. And that was five years ago. People said the same thing at the beginning of the pandemic where we had the kind of V-shaped recovery. Um, and I don't think that that's gonna happen again now um, because we're absent, you know, um, a, a very ambitious, um, you know, system of state subsidies and money printing. But, um, you know, whether it's six months or 12 months or 18 months, I agree with you, Todd. I think this is a period where there will be a recovery and well-operated companies will make it out and hit escape velocity. And companies that had been really dependent on, you know, an era of cheap money and easy liquidity uh, are gonna find themselves, um, you know, kind of falling back on their resourcefulness now. And I think that there's really a lot of silver linings to founders. And I, I have had conversations with our LPs about this. Um, marketing budgets are gonna go down. And so if you're trying to compete to acquire consumers for your FinTech product, you'll have more reasonable CACs and you'll be able to acquire consumers at a lower price point. Um, similarly, salaries have been inflated over the last couple of years with the kind of heyday of FinTech um, fundraises that we've seen. In all likelihood, salaries and, and you know equity requirements will condense a little bit. And you know, as some of these companies consolidate or wrap up or wind down, um, more talent's gonna enter the market and this talent will have FinTech training. So I think if you're an early stage founder right now, you know, there's actually a lot to look forward to in terms of being able to acquire really good talent uh, and go out there and build your company without a lot of the noise that came from the increased competition that you know easy funding facilitated over the past few years. So, are the CEOs that you're talking to, Nick, are they um, are they still pretty optimistic about uh, you know their their early stage? Most of the ones you chat with, are they are they optimistic about what's going what's coming down? You know, I'm looking at a very specific market segment, which is pre-seed and seed. Um, and so for the most part, I think like there's some anxiety about, you know, will you hit a bottleneck of the Series A? You know, are the milestones going to be impossibly high, you know, 12 months from now for us to go out and um, get a significant uh, level of appreciation on our equity? And the way I tell people to look at it is like, think of the analogy of deep space exploration. If you're sending a mission to Mars, it doesn't really matter what the weather on Mars is like today because it's not going to arrive for six months. You need to be a little bit more focused on what the arrival point looks like um, you know, when you're closer in time to the arrival. And so similarly here, if you're just raising your first you know, funding, whether it's friends and family or outside funding for a company, um, you shouldn't really be thinking about what the exit landscape looks like today. You should have a rough idea of you know, what the possible exit scenarios are for you. Um, but your you know, average horizon to exit is gonna be somewhere in five to 10 years. Um, and so as long as you're building a great product, you know, valuations today aren't going to be as directly relevant to what your, um, you know, ultimate exit scenarios look like. Right, right. Okay, well, we are out of time. We'll have to leave it there. Thank you very much for coming on, Nick. Thank you, Todd, as always. And, of course, thank you to everyone. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me. And, uh, yeah, we'll be back same time next week. Have a great weekend, everybody. Bye.